0: Welcome to the Synapse Snips podcast, where we explore the power of health and healing. On this podcast, we will be talking with health experts, professionals, and leaders about hot topics in the world of health. Whether it's tools to help you flourish, successful stories to inspire, or tips to optimize your health, Synapse Snips is here to help you take the first steps towards living your best life.
1: Welcome to Synapse Snips. It's Dr. Troy, Dr. Josh, Marquis. We're all here today, and we are going to be talking about brain fog. That's a pretty common thing uh, uh, that people come into the clinic and just I see as one of the top three complaints. Uh, Sometimes they always throw it in later, though. Mm -hmm. It's usually towards the end. They're like, oh, I've got pain or I've got headaches or I've got whatever. And then, oh, yeah, and brain fog. Because it goes along with everything. It it does. It really, really does go along with everything. And so there's so many things that can impact brain fog. Mm -hmm. So we just wanted to uh, talk a little bit about some of the factors that contribute to brain fog and uh, um, some of the things you can do about that. Uh, For each topic, though, we could probably spend an entire podcast on each one. So we'll try and hit the highlights here and, uh, and give you guys some... Some guidance right out of the gates that uh, something you can work on just to help the brain function. So, where do you want to start? Well, I was going to say when we were making
2: our list of causes of brain fog, which you should you should see our whiteboard. It's uh, not legible and messy, and we have a lot of causes of brain fog. And the thing that that we kind of came to was all of these causes of brain fog ultimately can cause brain dysfunction, cognitive decline and sometimes leading to Alzheimer's. And so we had a discussion about that. When we discuss Alzheimer's with patients, we say that there are 37 known reasons for why you can develop Alzheimer's. Now, those aren't Alzheimer's specific things. No. But they boil down to different categories.
1: Yeah, and for those uh, uh, who like to dig into it, uh, Dr. Bredesen, Dale Bredesen, wrote a book called The End of Alzheimer's, and he identifies those Thirty-seven different triggers, and and actually, we're adding to those uh, every year with more research, and and we have found uh, a couple of years back now. I did the uh, train with Dr. Bryson, his group there, and um, found uh, just a lot of success with people if you catch this stuff early on. So, uh, the easiest thing about Alzheimer's treatment is to treat it 10 years, 15 years, 20 years before it becomes Alzheimer's. We now know enough where we can, with real accurate predictions, find out who's going to have memory problems. And uh, we're hitting an age right now. It's very interesting. We're hitting a bubble, if you will, of Alzheimer's uh, um, an epidemic, if you will. Most of that has to do with the baby boomers getting to the point of Of actually getting into their seventies and eighties. But when you get to one out of two people over the age of 80 with Alzheimer's or dementia or some form of memory loss, it is relevant. And I have so many people coming, uh, to me to the clinic saying, my, my uncles have it, my, my father, my, my mom, I don't want it. What can I do? Mm -hmm. So there's just so much you can do. And it starts in your, uh, well, in your childhood and then, in your early 20s, I do have really big concerns for people um, that are not taking care of themselves, that are teenagers and young adults. Just like when I was first in uh, uh, school, in medical school, trying to figure out what uh, I was going to do with my life, uh, they taught us my first year of uh, med school before I transferred to chiropractic school, they taught us that uh, type 2 diabetes was something people got between the age of 50 and 70. And then as the decades went on, they changed the name from type 2 diabetes to um, uh, (laughs) or adult. They used to call it adult onset and childhood onset diabetes. And they changed it to type 2 diabetes uh, simply because the average age started to decline. So it went from... 50 to 70-year-olds who got it. Then all of a sudden, 40-year-olds to 6-year-olds were getting it. And then now we fast forward to the age we uh, Now we've got 8-year-olds who are getting type 2 diabetes, which means they have sped up the age of their pancreatic cells. They have degenerated their pancreatic cells to that of a 50 to 70-year-old in 8 years. and Because that's diet and lifestyle related. So that tells us, how much, uh, how important our, our diet and lifestyle is when it comes to diabetes. And there's a direct link to between diabetes and memory loss as well, especially for those that are genetically sensitive. So I have the same concern when it comes to Alzheimer's and memory that we're going to start seeing the same trends that we did with diabetes, where people in their 60s and 70s are getting it more than 80s, and then people in their 50s. We now have, I have a patient in their 40s with Alzheimer's has been diagnosed with al- Alzheimer's. So we're seeing these things happen younger and younger, just like we did with diabetes. I want to go back to something you said that's important. The majority
2: of people that I've seen coming in for cognitive issues wait too long to come in. Yes. Sometimes that's because of fast onset. I have a few people where it was really quick deterioration and there's nothing really that you can do about that except try to get in early before you even have a problem. And that's a whole nother conversation. But I think the big thing that has been true is talking about Alzheimer's and memory decline is a bit taboo, mm-hmm. where people don't want to even think that they have a problem, even if they're experiencing some little, oh, I lost my keys again, or I, you know, I'm forgetting yeah. things or difficulty with word finding. Some of those things happen but if they become persistent, that is an issue. And so when we see people, we I think we should describe real quick, we do a test called a MOCA, Montreal Cognitive Assessment. And it's a very quick and easy tool for us to assign um, cognitive capacity. It's scored out of 30. If you score above 26, I think you're considered normal. And we have all of our patients who have any sort of cognitive complaint do that test. Yes. And what we try to look for is if if you're below 10 for instance that's that's not a good indicator you know that's, that's it makes it much more difficult to get some cognition back but if you're over that especially for over 20 even if you have that as a complaint you have a much higher probability of of fixing some of the issues that are leading to the cognitive change
1: yeah absolutely and there's there is a lot that you can um that you can do actually when it comes to Working on the 37 Mm -hmm. different uh, areas. So uh, when it comes to the actual, um, I'll say this too. We've had people come in in their 50s and we catch and measure some of the markers and um, their MOCA score goes back into the normal range. And so Mm -hmm. that you're basically pushing off or staving off the actual diagnosis diagnosis of Alzheimer's. One of the things I learned in, in the training, though, was kind of the human aspect of this, uh, to what you were just talking about. If you think about it, as you start to lose your memory a little bit, you're losing you. You're, you're losing the freedom to be independent. And I've had people crying in my office because they realize now they are 100% dependent on their spouse, their family, or, God forbid, some stranger at a at a home which is all too common as well. So, um, it is something that, uh, is not a lot of fun, uh, on for the individual, but also for the family to see their, their loved ones suffering. And the number one cause for people not reporting memory loss is fear of losing their driver's license. Hmm. And so that is, uh, again, a sign of losing your independence and, it's a tough thing to go through for people, so uh, it, it is a hard conversation to have with yourself and with others. But the sooner you get in, the better. And I will say this: the younger generation seems to be um, more on top of recognizing that something's wrong that way. Mm-hmm. But they've got, they've had so much more damage to their cortex and brain than we ever did, uh, whether it be the the amount of sugar they're they have available to them or uh, the video games that's a whole other podcast so Mm -hmm. we can get into that but we want to talk a little bit about the other end of this spectrum too and that's brain fog that's how to recognize memory issues early on because brain fog could many many things that cause brain fog end up causing dementia or Alzheimer's for those that are susceptible later in life so might as well work on it and get the best version of you while you can at whatever age you're at right now.
2: Yeah. That's an important point. These things that we're going to talk about are both identifiable and fixable. That doesn't guarantee that you will never get Alzheimer's. Right. But Alzheimer's back a hundred years ago was rare. It was. Right? Yeah. And now it's not. And so part of that is outside of our control because of our environment. But there are a lot of things that are inside of our control.
1: Yeah.
2: So, we have a list here that we're going to run through. One thing that's not on the list since we're talking Alzheimer's that I think is interesting. I wanted to touch real quick on the ApoE yeah. deal because that's a, there's a genetic test that we run and it's a, it's a predictor of Alzheimer's. Yeah. It's called ApoE and there's different types two, three and four. And we run that test for two reasons. One, because it does show an increased likelihood of Alzheimer's risk if you have ApoE four. Yes. As either of those two copies that you get from your parents. But it also shows if you have that, that you would respond better to certain types of diet strategies. And I think that's an important point that it's not just a, oh, it's a bad news thing. Well, it's something you can do about that.
1: Yeah, it's a, it's a percentage risk. So, uh, you can still make some lifestyle changes and, and mitigate that whole process. So it's not a, it's not a for sure thing you're going to get it at all because those genes were still, the genes your ancestors had two hundred years ago and they did not get Alzheimer's. Yeah. Exactly. So that is something for, for people to remember. And we've got we've got a lot of information that uh um a lot of data I'm gonna say is as, as far as what sets up and sets off uh that apoe E four and apoe E three. And there's a lot of cardiovascular stuff that goes with the apoe E four, E three scenario. So by really addressing those two things, you're helping Two different, two key parts of your body and your, and, and how you function, your brain and your heart, your cardiovascular system. Yeah,
2: which are very tied in. There are a lot of types of cognitive decline that are not quote unquote Alzheimer's, but they're related to blood flow. You can get vascular dementia where it's just you don't have enough oxygen getting to your brain for it to work properly. Yes. A lot of the guys that I see coming in, a lot of the men for cognitive decline, that's one of their big problems is they have cle- elevated cholesterol or diabetes affecting cardiovascular health and blood flow.
1: Yeah. And the, they used to call, um, the memory loss, uh, type three diabetes or diabetes of the brain hmm. because so many people with diabetes and blood sugar problems were having memory issues. Hmm. They now have six different categories of Alzheimer's. So, uh, the blood sugar regulation is just one of the six.
2: Yeah.
1: And you can have multiple of those categories. Right? Absolutely. Yeah. Um, so
2: blood sugar. Uh, one of the other, well, we have, we have inflammation up as a, as a cause also. That's a bit non-specific in that, you know, inflammation can be essentially caused by a lot of these other things that we're
1: going to discuss. Do you want to say anything generally about inflammation? Yeah. So inflammation can affect the body. It can be pain in the joints. Um, think of it just like a little, little tiny sparks of fire and, when it comes to the brain, it doesn't take a lot of inflammation to cause dysfunction, and, and a little break in the synapse or a break in the how the commun- brain communicates is a big is a big part of it. By the way, that's where we got our name uh, for the clinic synapse uh, yeah. official synapses because synapse is the junction between where how between the nerves where they communicate, and communication is the key to life. It's the key to su- the successful, healthy living uh it's uh the key to good relationships with other people. So a breakdown in communication leads to dysfunction, leads to disease. In the brain, a breakdown in communication at this level of a synapse uh will lead to very problematic uh um, scenarios and Alzheimer's being the the big one. So yeah. it's actually why I named it synapse in the beginning right in the beginning. I thought it was clever when I <laughs> came up with it. But then you have to explain it to everyone all the time. So <laughs> it's just, unique though. It's it is unique.
2: Yeah. I wanted to say for inflammation, early on in life in particular, a lot of the inflammation is seen in the gut and gut dysfunction. Yes. Because gut dysfunction, even alone, outside of anything else, is enough
1: inflammation to drive cognitive change. Yeah, and once you have inflammation in the gut, it can break down the barrier system in the gut, which can eventually lead to a breakdown in the barrier system in the brain. And then that's when we really see problems, when that blood-brain barrier uh, gets uh, corrupted at all. Even with tiny little pinholes of, of a leakage, you can have issues with uh, infectious, infectious agents or um, things that aren't supposed to be in the brain disrupting and causing problems. And so... The inflammatory process is both, uh, can occur both intracellularly and extracellularly, uh, on both sides of that blood brain uh, barrier system. But the gut is one of the keys mm-hmm. to that. So our digestive function is, is super important when it comes to, to memory, not just from inflammatory perspective, but a lot of our neurotransmitters are made in the brain. In the in the, in the brain, in the brain for, uh, for real, but uh, in the digestive tract too. Serotonin, a lot of the output of serotonin comes from the digestive system. Yeah,
2: you mentioned infections. Let's go there next. You know, one one stat that I always remember is there was a a study done on it was unfortunately people who had passed from Alzheimer's. They were looking at their brains, and I don't remember how many they looked at, 100, 200, something like that. But eighty plus percent of those people had Lyme disease infections yeah. in their brain. Now, that doesn't mean necessarily that Lyme disease is causing it, but I think it is a bigger point to infections and the inflammation that they can cause is just another key to this to this puzzle.
1: Yeah, we know that we need our, our brain's immune system, our glymphatic network to be activated to keep the brain clean so that we don't get the tangles and we don't get the... Uh, the scarring if you will that comes with uh, these cognitive disorders and so your your immune system in a nutshell does two things it fights infection and uh, inflammation and so it it helps balance both those scenarios if it's busy doing a lot of that then it's not going to be cleaning up the brain the way it needs to be yeah if you have
2: in both poor immune function which could lead to infection or an infection that you can't clear, that's ongoing brain inflammation, then that's going to deteriorate things. And it's not only Lyme. I mean, that this is seen with viruses. It's seen with other bacteria, Epstein-Barr virus, herpes viruses. These are all implicated in some degree to different types of brain pathologies.
1: Yeah, there you can do lab testing. And they'll actually check for multiple different mm-hmm. um infections uh, across the board parasites all kinds of different things can actually uh, go across the blood brain barrier yeah speaking of other
2: things that go across the blood brain barrier then let's let's talk toxins or heavy metals i think that's a that's a big thing we see too it's you know what the one of the biggest causes for that and it uh, this is something that is also an age dependent thing i think is is mercury amalgam fillings were much more popular back You know, three, four, five decades ago than they are now. Now it's a lot more of the white kind of ceramic or whatever type of material it is. But those amalgam fillings, the silvery-looking fillings, and the majority of people that I see, patients, whether that's for cognition or not, you look in their mouth and they're going to have three, four, five, sometimes more of those fillings. Yes. Those are 50% mercury by weight. That's a lot of mercury. Yeah. And if they've been in your mouth for 50 years... They don't
1: always hold up very well. No, the the vapors can cause a lot. And I and I, I like to tell it uh, through this story or this analogy, because a lot of people have heard this expression, mad as a hatter. Yeah. And so <laughs> yeah. where that came from was back in the day, uh, hatters were basically hired to stiffen the hat. So as you wore those, uh, those, you know, we're talking about 17, 1800s, you know, those those hats that uh, Abraham Lincoln used to wear and put on top of his head to stiffen them and get them taller was a sign that you were well established. You had more means. You had, you had money. So there was a person who would stiffen that. Well, what they used to stiffen that in their shop. Mercury was a part of that process and the vapors, they'd be breathing that in all day long. Mm -hmm. And so the term mad as a hatter came from basically all these hatters that after doing their work for a certain time period would lose their mental status. They would lose their mind. They would go nuts because of the mercury vapors. There's affinity for mercury and other heavy metals uh, for the the brain tissue. Mm -hmm. So our... The way, way I like to say it is if you if you have a toxin, the best place to store a toxin that you can't get rid of is in an insulator. Something's going to insulate it. Our best insulators in our body are fat. Unfortunately, our brain, fortunately and unfortunately, our brain is a good fat storage site. Mm-hmm. So as you are exposed to all these environmental toxins that your body can't eliminate it's going to store it in fat. Now, if you're obese, it's going to store it in the obese tissue as well. Um, but as you lose weight, what are you doing? Mm-hmm. You're liberating those toxins that have been stored there for years. So that's why you have to lose weight slowly. Otherwise, we can see other problems start to develop. Also, uh, for women in particular, it's a completely different topic, but uh, toxins are stored in fat and breast tissue is fat. So we see Problems with um, breast health when it comes to toxicity issues as well. Mm-hmm.
2: For all of these toxins, whether it's heavy metals or environmental toxins, um, we see and that's another thing. We see a lot of environmental toxins. You know, yeah. We do urine testing and look at Roundup and a lot of these other things. the The general process of detoxification, regardless of the toxin, has a lot of commonality. And so, I think we should touch real quick on. That process. I always tell my patients there's kind of a big conveyor belt of detox. You've got your cells. Your cells gotta get rid of the junk, whether it's fat or something else. Then you've got your lymphatic system. Everybody's yes. heard of lymph nodes. They're the little things that swell up in your neck if you're sick. But that lymph is your garbage collection site and all that lymph's gotta drain up near your neck, regardless of where it comes from. Then it's gotta get in your blood and then into your liver, gallbladder and your kidneys and, you know, the skin is involved in this process too. And then yeah. the gut. Got a lot of things on that conveyor belt that can go wrong. Yes. So for f- when we have a patient where we notice toxins, it's a big process to get that whole system working.
1: Yes. And the, the lymph system can weigh you down. So if your lymph, lymph system becomes congested and lymph, uh, it literally is Greek for fast flowing waters or fast flowing rivers. So think of it like a river system where you're dumping your garbage in and it takes it to the liver recycling plant, if you will to uh, to help get it out of the body. And if that system gets backed up, the river system stops flowing, or sometimes it starts to flow in the opposite direction or become stagnant, then we start to see problems. You can't detoxify all that well. If your fast-flowing river has turned into more of a lava stream or or thickened uh, mud, it's not going to be flowing. You're not going to be getting rid of toxins. People will feel brain fog if that is... In around the head or their their GI tract, they will feel flu-like symptoms. If it's in the rest of their body, even their legs can start to feel heavy. Their arms can start to feel heavy. So we can see a lot of challenges mentally and physically when the lymph system gets congested. And that's such a big deal because there are so many things that interfere with our ability to detoxify uh, normally. Uh, one of the sneaky ones, other than the environmental toxins, are, are hormones too. Mm. Uh, thyroid dysfunction in particular, an unmanaged thyroid scenario can clog or congest, is a better word, the liver's ability to detoxify the lymph system. And one of the things that affects thyroid dysfunction, environmental chemicals that mimic estrogen, like pesticides. And so we've got this scenario of constantly battling these, these, uh, uh, poisons, if you will, that affect the conveyor belt uh, scenario. And different things can help with that. Like, uh, what's something that you tell one of your patients uh, to do to help with the lymph system? Move.
2: Move. <laughs> right. Yeah. I mean, there's no heart to pump that lymph. So it's all muscle and diaphragm dependent. Yeah. That's one thing. And If you don't feel good, you don't want to move very much. Yeah. But you can get into this situation. And I see this a lot where then a person starts to move they don't always feel that great doing that movement
1: either no. because you're pushing that detox pathway out. Yeah, start with walking. If you guys uh, suspect lymph systems, start with walking. But it's the muscle contraction that gets that fast-flowing river mm-hmm. moving. And so uh, the other thing that you need in a fast-flowing river is water. Yeah, so just two simple things. Making sure you're drinking enough water and moving helps with your lymph system mm-hmm. quite a bit. The, the, those are the two basics.
2: Yeah, Hydration, going on to kind of our next cause of brain fog, is another thing generally. Yeah. Outside of lymph then, because we just talked about that, what are other reasons for why lack of fluid is going to cause brain fog?
1: Well, we need uh, fluid uh, in our lymph system to help with the detoxification mode. We also need water in our body for our immune cells to go to where they need to go to fight infection. We've got a great video on our website. Uh, uh-huh. uh, it is on there. Uh, that uh, actually shows you how your immune cells operate in, uh, in your body, what it looks like under a microscope. And they're swimming. They're literally swimming in there. It also shows the flowing of your red blood cells. So we need water in our circulation to help with good circulation. If we don't have the water and the flowing of our blood cells, we can't deliver oxygen. And I know oxygen deprivation can lead to brain fog so that's that's one i can take to the bank right away so yes. but if you have things like anemia that's uh, low blood uh delivery low hemoglobin low red blood cells that also means you're getting less oxygen less oxygen is is crucial our brain needs two things to survive uh well three things really our brain needs oxygen glucose or sugar and then needs to be activated or stimulated Without those three things, the baseline function doesn't work. So start on those basics. Make sure you're getting enough oxygen. And one of the things I like to teach people is just measure your rib excursion. When you take a deep breath, your ribs expand out. If they don't, then you might not be getting a full enough breath and getting enough oxygen as well. So just the physical aspect of muscle tension, uh, rib tension, Uh, Can impact that, and again, movement helps a lot with that. Uh, Chiropractic, physical therapy, all those different types of uh, uh, practices that help with the actual movement and the and the breathing, especially, are are very important. Yeah,
2: I want to mention one thing because you said the the multiple things that a brain cell needs. You mentioned blood sugar. Yeah. When your blood sugar is dysregulated and you have insulin resistance, though, that becomes very tough. Yes, that's if a lot of people have heard of a ketogenic diet. Yes. and we have a lot of uh, patients in this situation and really a lot of brain situations not just cog- cognitive changes benefit from not always a full on really strict ketogenic diet but using those principles through intermittent fasting you want yeah. to explain a little bit more about that
1: yeah so the, the bringing the blood sugar back into balance is really important and and um, we'll start with this. Uh, we just consume so much, so much more sugar than we used to. And we, we consume so many more calories than we used to that uh, it is um, out of balance. I've gotten out of balance quite a bit. And so with the ketogenic diet, it's helping to um, you, your body to use energy in a different way. So it's not all just about the sugars. And so uh, I, I know for myself, um, we're able to modify that depending on how soon we get into it mm-hmm. so that there's a nice balance between using sugar for energy and the mm-hmm. citric acid cycle, uh, versus the, the ketogenic, uh, uh, component. And, um, but the amount of research out there is fascinating as far as, um, twofold because the ketogenic also, uh, will affect the body's pH, um, in a positive way. When you've gotten into the insulin resistance and and diabetic uh, conversations, and so uh, that also helps your nerve cells be a little more receptive to uh, alternate forms of, of energy. Yeah, yeah. So speaking of food,
2: um, well, I guess food, alternate forms of energy. We talked about gut health, but we didn't touch on food allergies, and I think we should should mention that food allergies. It's a bit of a it's a bit of a broad. State or a kind of a broad category because yeah. there's different types of food allergies. There's anaphylactic allergies, which is more of a true allergy, like like a, a peanut allergy, yeah, a peanut, shellfish, something like that, where you're gonna swell up and have a big problem. Yeah, um, but there's also food intolerances, sensitivities, and that
1: falls on a big spectrum. Yes, it does. Yeah, you can have uh, a sensitivity to a food where it just causes a little bit of inflammation or it could irritate you. Mm -hmm. You could have uh, an intolerance where you don't have an enzyme to actually break that food down so it sits on your gut a little bit longer than the bacteria feed on that versus the enzymes breaking it down. So it's important to know whether you have uh, any type of food reaction, number one, because a lot of foods will cause irritation. And even sometimes it'll be temporary, sometimes it's more permanent, Mm -hmm. like gluten... Problems are a little bit more uh, permanent for most people. Dairy, uh, a little bit more permanent. We do find that uh, the type of gluten, though, matters. So people here in the United States may be able to travel over to Europe and be fine with uh, Mm -hmm. the gluten. We've seen that with many of our uh, patients here. Um, But we've also had people who tend to eat a lot of sugar, and the sugar causes an inflammatory reaction in the GI tract, and then they react to raw fruits and vegetables. And they may say, okay, I had a food reaction against the fruits and vegetables. I can't eat the, the veggies. And we, we look at it and we say, no, this is sugar and coffee and alcohol causing inflammation. And then the fiber of the vegetables is rubbing up against the sides of the walls of the intestinal tract, causing it uh, a constriction or a reaction. Mm-hmm. That's more common than having a true negative reaction uh, to the vegetables. So identifying the inflammatory source is very important. Yeah. And in the intestinal tract itself, we have this uh, system called GALT, the gut-associated lymphatic tissue, that's connected to our immune system, if you will, and our detoxification system as well. So our interactions in the GI tract can actually impact reactions elsewhere in the body. And and the way you can experience this is if you eat something like cheese or food and then all of a sudden your nasal passages kind of swells up, and you're producing mucus in the in the nasal passage because of something you ate that's a reaction um from that uh, immune system and uh, there's a whole other that's a whole other talk they're called embryologic homologs but they're basically different parts of the body that start off together when you're first born and then go to go migrate to different areas and when you see that uh, reaction just know that uh, there's some discernment needed when it comes to the foods but you know if you eat food and something's not feeling right afterwards there's something going on that requires investigation Mm -hmm. especially if you can duplicate it time and time again yeah
2: i want to say this because i we have a lot of people who come in on very restrictive diets and it's it's my opinion that those that level of restriction should not be the end all be all answer to a person's health correct a food food restrictions like that I think should be temporary and when a person reacts to that many foods it's a sign of a deeper problem. It's not that those foods are inherently bad. Yeah. It's that other things need to be addressed and fixed in some way to allow the person then to to reintroduce those foods or some of those foods in a healthy manner. Um that that breed, you know, that problem breeds a lot even psychologically. I think we should maybe tie this into stress because yeah. stress around having food reactions in and of itself can cause food reactions, even if the food isn't going to be a problem in the first place. Yeah. (laughs) Welcome
1: to the, welcome to the the dilemma because you have to care about your diet and what you eat, but not worry about it, Mm -hmm. not stress about it. So that's, that is such a, a balance of life. And there's a dichotomy there that just has to be sorted through because you need, you need both. And so, we can't have people have stress because when you have stress, we'll, we'll take the, the extreme example of an ulcer. Very acute stress, you literally get a hole in your stomach from the amount of stress. That happens because there are nerves that stop firing and other nerves that do fire. You end up going into what we call fight or flight more than rest and digest. So uh, with that in mind, acute stress, chronic stress, and sleep disorders are maybe the top causes of why people develop food allergies and food sensitivities that uh, especially if there's more that uh, keep getting adding up so like you said there's more to it it, it shouldn't be just avoiding that food there, there has to be more to it and uh, we see this quite commonly and i i experienced this early on in my 20s when i burned myself on i wrote a book about it many years ago but i i got down to three foods that i knew didn't disrupt basically chicken rice and broccoli that's what i ate for a long time and it wasn't until i restored and fixed um my sleep and some other habits and and got my uh, digestive system restored that i've started functioning better and feeling better Mm -hmm. now at the time they didn't have a diagnosis called leaky gut but now i know that's what it was based on how many foods i couldn't tolerate yeah so it's very very important to to address the leaky gut or the amount of food reactions and work on eliminating that. But you have to work on the, the root cause problem mm-hmm. um, on top of that and get the, and restore the function of the good communication from the brain to the body. Yeah. Let's talk about
2: trauma next. Cause I think this ties in because trauma can be looked at in two ways. And the the first way that I want to talk about is it's the psychological trauma. Yes. Just like we talked about, you can have essentially PTSD from your past health issues, even tied to food and tied to some other things. And sometimes it's not that, but the stress around life situations or what have you is so powerful to the brain that it does shut down the gut and it does shut down and cause then brain fog by extension.
1: Yep, absolutely. Yeah. Trauma is trauma is highly highly impactful decades after the trauma if that trauma is not dealt with in some way shape or form mm-hmm. there's a book called the deepest well um that's very well written a medical doctor who uh, looked at uh, kids in the inner city growing up in traumatic uh, scenarios and the diseases they developed in adult adulthood and so there is a, a direct link to trauma impacting our ability to digest and detox properly and so um, that becomes you know something very very important but i also want to comment on the micro traumas of the everyday we live in an age right now where we could have a potential stress reaction every five seconds just by looking at our phone when we're, mm-hmm. when we're looking at our phone and looking at what's going on in the world what's going on with their family What's going on with everything. We have instant access to us right now. Uh, and we have instant access to the majority of the world. And there's enough information, enough um, bad things going on that we can have a stress response every new flick of the page, every new uh, look uh, everywhere. And so these are little micro traumas that will add up and, and take down your ability to digest food or at least cause a stress response. And what do we crave when you have stress? Sugar. Sugar. <laughs> I always like to ask this when I'm uh, in an audience, ask mm-hmm. ask uh, men and women because it's different. When you're under stress, what do women crave? And I've I've well, never Chocolate, right? chocolate, chocolate yeah. Uh, I've uh, never had them get that wrong. Mm-hmm. And number one, um, for sugar, uh, what do guys crave for sugar? Number one, and it's not chocolate. No. No potato chips that's that's the salt salt. yeah chips is the salt yeah (laughs) potato chips is the salt and it's the alcohol Mm. alcohol is the sugar guys go to and so uh and then bread is like uh, or carbs is the is right behind uh both of those and so we tend to see the um these cravings go up with these traumatic scenarios and uh uh, they could also be micro traumas too. And we live in an age of all these sneaky little micro traumas that are mm-hmm. coming in there and wreaking havoc on our ability to properly digest and nutrient ourselves. Mm-hmm. And then that can affect your sleep. And, and if you eat inflammatory food like salty and sugar foods before bed, that can mm-hmm. dampen your ability to get into a deep sleep as well. So it becomes again another vicious cycle. It does. Yeah. yeah. Yeah, there's something to be
2: said about avoiding those stressors and there's also something about building resilience to those stressors too cuz yeah. you can't avoid everything. It's a, it's worth learning how your body responds to those stressors so that you're not taken off guard by, you know, what it is that your body is craving.
1: Yeah, and here's here's a quick little thing you can do at home. If you fast and you feel better as far as brain fog then you've got something in your digestive system or detox system that needs support and help. If you sleep and your brain fog gets a little bit better, then uh, you know you've got something in it disrupting your sleep. If you fast from social media and your brain fog gets better, you're micro-traumatizing yourself every day. And so take a look at that to play around with those. If you're fasting from food, make sure you do it properly. If uh, there's a certain percentage of the population that are hypoglycemic and will feel awful fasting, the majority of people should feel better. Yeah.
2: Can you explain, I want you to explain something, because you developed a technique that we use a lot here, the the clearings, and there's other words that we we use for that or names we use for that. That's a powerful tool in this situation. I have some patients where going through and doing those clearings on some of their primary stressors not only helps them you know, feel better generally, but it can help with digestion, it can help with pain, it can help with sleep. Can you explain a little bit of, about those clearings? Yeah, so
1: I'll do that in uh, the short version. So, yeah, okay, yeah, um, longer. <laughs> it. it uh, Years ago, I had a patient uh, who was referred uh, to me by an intern, and uh, he was in um, the war, and so he basically had hit his head and got some, a bad concussion, was recovering from that and found out that their newborn baby back home in the United States may not make it through the night. That mental and physical trauma impacted him so much, he woke up the next day frozen stiff, just kind of locked in. So locked-in syndrome. If you you can just picture yourself waking up and you can't really move, you can talk, you can kind of say some words, you can shuffle uh, around but can't walk or run or anything anymore because your muscles are so tight and stiff. So they called me. He had been in that state for about a year when they called me from uh, Germany is where he was at this point. And um, it was a quick call. I took it because it was a a a friend of the, of the intern and it was in between patients. And so as they were explaining this scenario, uh, it, it jumped out that this sounded like an area of the brain called the basal ganglia happens to be my favorite area of the brain because it sets the tone for muscles and emotions. And, uh, I heard the other doctors kind of laughing, uh, cause I was on speakerphone and they were laughing at me and everything. And I said, uh, asked the wife just to put her on. I said, get a PET scan. If I'm right, it'll show up basal ganglia. And, uh, then I didn't think anything of it. Well, another year, a full year went by and I got a phone call again and it was his wife and he had been in this frozen locked in state for two years and she said, um, yeah, they thought you were nuts, and uh, so they didn't do it. I fought them on it, and they just now did a PET scan and showed hyperactive basal ganglia. So they want to send them to your clinic. So at that point, I said, well, I knew what area of the brain it was. It didn't mean really I knew how to <laughs> fix it. <laughs> Which was very accurate. So, um, so the government, the army, was sent to my clinic, and one of the things I do is when I, when I, when I don't know, uh, when I don't have all the answers, I try to uh, dive into it and understand it as best I can. So I start reading about the uh, basal ganglia and some of the other stuff that was there. Um, Dr. Amen had some good information out there at that time. And then I pray about it. Well, it happens to be one of the first times, or the only time actually, where I, I prayed for an answer and I got an answer instantly. And that answer was for me to check a different part of the brain called the cerebellum and, and not, not to stop, just keep going. And so it was a weird, it was kind of a weird revelation that came there. But when he came in, I start, when I got to the area of the brain for my neurologic check to do the, uh, testing, all of a sudden he was able to start moving his finger. And the short version is that, uh, after a couple hours of stimulating three different areas of the brain, we were able to get him um, moving again, walking. He, he jumped off the table, clapped his hands and said, okay, what's next? And so we were all crying at that point because it was, it was a miracle and it was like, holy smokes, he'd been locked up for two years and he just jumped off the table. And, uh, uh, from there he was going to go back home to where he lived and, uh, something happened. He got into the airplane and he said the second the airplane started he says like my body remembered the vibration of the plane he went into that locked in state mm-hmm. so uh he they turned the plane around came back to the clinic and he ended up we tested him turns out he was at, it was acting like a post-traumatic stress disorder mm-hmm. and we had to do the same technique where we stimulate the three different areas of the brain and body with every sensory experience he had had in the two years he was in that locked in state. So it was still the most obvious example I've ever had in 20 years where he would literally be sitting there talking to you. And then you would show him a picture of his son and he'd go into that frozen state. And then we would do the technique and he'd be able to move more freely again. So it was just, it was just, it's basically rewiring by getting the cerebellum, which deals with all memory, muscle memory and emotional memory getting it communicating with the right part of our brain, the correct part of our brain. But what it did show me was how many people are walking around with mild forms of post-traumatic stress disorder because we started testing it on everyone. turns out even a lot of my healthy patients had some level of dysfunction here. Mm-hmm. And when we restored that part of it, all of a sudden the cerebellum started working better and communicating with the brain stem and the basal ganglia and the cortex better. So there's a lot more to it, and it's not the end all be all as far as, uh, um, uh, correcting PTSD or anything like that. There's a lot of other, uh, components and factors, but it's become a huge tool in the toolbox to help restore proper communication to basically get the level of, of stressors out of the body that are, that are, uh, interfering with proper communication. But what's even more shocking is how, relevant it is to overall health with almost every condition mm-hmm. i've never not found that to be a problem with someone with fibromyalgia so they've always had that issue and especially people that have um problems with what we identify with their hpa axis the hypothalamic pituitary adrenal axis mm-hmm. there's usually a stressor involved that uh that is is blocking things so as it relates to cognitive function and relates to um brain fog it's more of a secondary causative thing because it's usually the digestive stuff that it influences and then that causes the memory issues Mm -hmm. so believe it or not that was the short version yeah i know (laughs) i've heard the long version yes (laughs) (laughs) yeah but it it
2: it really ties in all of these things because you don't know what trigger is going to be emotionally problematic for a person right and it could be anything from, and we, we do this on muscles. We do this on emotions. We do this on a lot of things because sometimes just resetting the brain's memory of these different stressors can be impactful to every body system. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. All right. So let's see here. We've got our list here. I'll check it twice. We didn't talk. <laughs> we, we talked a little bit about sleep. Anything you want to say about?
1: That? Well, yeah, this is kind of my big, this sleep is so important because, uh, I've said this many times, but uh, Stanford University has identified 102 different sleep disorders. And most people can name four or five. And so I think the majority of people in today's age do not sleep deeply or well enough. And that's a big problem. So just focusing on sleep hygiene, um, little things make big differences. Making sure you have a good mattress. Make sure you have sheets Uh, body temperature Uh, some people use fans some people you know whatever it takes Uh, get your mind right before going to sleep and do your best whatever you can to get yourself into a good deep sleep and then look at what interferes with that and if it's kids sorry you gotta take care (laughs) of them still if it's uh if it's work stress or other things then you gotta do your best to manage it don't don't ignore it you start to develop plans and strategies to to actually balance it better and i will say the number one cause of sleep problems is being on your phone computer or tv too soon before going to bed mm-hmm. um, other than diet i would say diet and uh and uh relationship stress can always yeah, take yeah. number one spot there but yeah yeah
2: well, good. Well, this is by no means an exhaustive list of causes of brain fog. New. But because like we, like we led with, because brain fog is a symptom that shows up really with the vast majority of issues that we see. It's not a, a one pill, one fix type of thing that, Hey, you're going to fix your brain fog with this one thing. It's right. always
1: coming along for the ride with other stuff. Yeah. A lot of times once if someone's been there for a while, it'll affect a lot of the other categories. So like one of the infection ones we see a lot is candida fungus or or a SIBO scenario. And that affects the foods that you can eat and then your absorption levels, which affect the other hormones. And so there usually is a chain reaction of events. But if you can kind of get to the big heavy hitters, make sure you're going to get enough oxygen, balancing your blood sugar, reducing your inflammation, taking care of any underlying infections and restoring your sleep process that's going to go a long way yeah. to help with your, your brain fog. Yeah,
2: everything that we talked about today is something that can be addressed and fixed and improved upon.
1: Yeah. Mm-hmm. And, and that's one of the reasons why we focus on healthy um, diet and lifestyles, because when you get to what that means for you, then a lot of the things that... Uh, that are nagging you actually do improve mm-hmm. uh it can just take a lot of work and effort to get there especially if you're going uphill against the wind because you've got uh extra demands at work or family or or what have you so yeah. a lot of a lot of challenges uh so it's the world we live in right now um where we have a lot of excess of the things that actually cause problems for us and a lot of uh, deficiencies in the things that actually help us heal yeah
2: great well, to wrap up, I wanted to switch gears real quick on a housekeeping item. Yes. And so we've recently done an update to our website slightly to make it easier to find the podcast, make it easier to find our old videos, to make it easier to find your radio appearances, too, because we've had requests to keep that updated. Yeah. So on our website, which is officialsynapse.com, there is now a media tab kind of in the main um, main menu area. And that shows a drop down of those three things. So you can easily find these podcasts. You can easily find all of our YouTube videos and then the radio appearances as well that are going to be, um, we'll keep that updated much more, uh, much more easily now. Yeah. So and
1: now you guys know why synapse, why it's called synapse. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> yep. Perfect. All right. Well, thanks. Uh, love this conversation and it's, uh, it's a big one. So, uh, keep sending in, um, the requests, the ones that are stopping by the clinic, just keep uh, telling us your thoughts as well. And uh, we appreciate all of you and, and uh, hoping for a uh, cleaner brain function in uh, 2022. So take care, everyone. Thanks for listening.
0: Thank you for listening to the Synapse Nips podcast. If you like what you heard, subscribe to the podcast and share the podcast. To learn more, check out our website at www.officialSynapse.com. Until next time, this has been Synapse Snips Podcast. We'll see you on the next episode. This podcast is for information purposes only and should under no circumstances be considered medical advice or substitute for medical care. Any information given in this podcast is not intended to diagnose or treat any disease and is at the user's own risk. Please first consult a licensed healthcare professional.